think it's really important that people get a sense that Haggai is looking forward to what God is going to do in the midst of his people. And just as he did it for that generation, and it was centred on a physical temple in Jerusalem, he's done exactly the same thing for us, centred on the new temple raised up in Christ. I really would hope that people would see Haggai ultimately as pointing to Christ and of God's good purposes in raising up Christ to bless his people. Welcome to Help Me Teach the Bible. I'm Nancy Guthrie. Help Me Teach the Bible is a production of the Gospel Coalition sponsored by Crossway, a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible Christian Books and Tracts, including the ESV Bible Expository Commentary Series. Learn more at crossway.org. It's my joy to be in St. Andrew's House, the headquarters for the Sydney Anglicans in Sydney, Australia today, and I'm in the offices of the Right Reverend Dr. Michael Stead. Dr. Stead, thank you so much for um, helping us teach the Bible. Oh, Nancy, it's a privilege to be with you. So you are the Bishop of South Sydney. Indeed. So for us non-Anglicans, uh, explain to us that role. Yes. As a bishop, I have oversight over a region of churches. In the region of South Sydney, there are about 50 churches, uh, and my job is to help gospel ministry to flourish in those churches, uh, which in practical terms means uh, looking after the pastors and the other key lay leaders in, in the, uh, the the church. Uh, I visit churches on a regular basis, so on any given Sunday, I'll be visiting one of the churches in my region, which means it takes me a year to get around mm. uh, all the different churches. Um, and my job is to, as I said, to encourage gospel ministry. Would you begin by just telling us a little bit about uh, your own interaction with the Bible? Did you grow up in a Christian home? How did it come about uh, a passion for God's Word developed in your life? Um, I grew up in a Christianized but not Christian household, uh, although mum and dad have now come to faith. Um, uh, at the time that I grew up, mum, I think, would have described herself as a lapsed Anglican and dad as an agnostic, if not atheist. Um, but they sent their kids along to Sunday school and because of the influence of a godly uh, um, grandmother, in my case, who um, uh, persuaded her daughter to make sure that the kids were sent along to Sunday school. From my earliest years, I went along to church every week and went to Boys Brigade and various things like that. And so I grew up uh, immersed in the scriptures, um, given daily Bible reading notes by my grandmother. They were called scripture union notes over mm -hmm. here. And um, uh, so I think I've always, uh, uh, yeah, I've always known God through his word uh, from, from uh, the earliest days I can remember and, and have had a passion for um, getting to know the Bible well. Um, for me, that was actually prompted by adversity during high school mm -hmm. because uh, being challenged uh, about my Christian faith, uh, it forced me to go back to the scriptures and to believe, uh, to, to see whether they were true and worth believing. And mm -hmm. so uh, from, from, a, uh, yeah, from a young age, I'm, I'm aware of having been forced to um, carefully consider the accuracy of the things in the mm -hmm. Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, for, I think for my, most of my growing up, my interest was more in the, the, the New Testament than the Old Testament. Uh, it was as I started doing theological study that I suddenly discovered the Old Testament and realised uh, all these things uh, which so richly pointed to Christ uh, that they all kind of came, to, they came out of the Old Testament then they came together in the New. 
And so I think it's it's in a latter stage of my Christian development that I've I've come to be a passionate engager with the Old Testament. Mm. Well, this is one reason that I wanted to talk to you mm. because of your passionate engagement with the Old Testament. And you recently contributed to a volume, one of the first volumes that has just is just coming out of the ESV expository commentary, mm. the volume that's Daniel through Malachi. There are 13 contributors, and uh, the 13 contributors each handle one specific book of the Bible, and your contribution is on this tiny but important book in the uh, Minor Prophets, Haggai. Yeah, and I was delighted to be asked. That that particular part of the scriptures is of great interest to me. So we're talking about um, what are known as the post-exilic prophets. So Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are a particular set of books that go together. And I've had a particular interest in, in them for some time. Uh, because they come at such a, a late stage in the development of the Old Testament, a, a lot of the, the rest of the Old Testament is already out there. And therefore, uh, these works are able to bring together the themes of the motifs, uh, if you like, to do a biblical theology of the Old Testament, to bring it all together. And so that's my particular interest in those books is because uh, they are helping the people of God understand the promises of God and apply them to their particular situation, uh, looking to the way that God is going to be faithful to his promises into the future. Uh, and Haggai is a, is a, 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 a brilliant, if condensed, way of, of doing that just in the space of two short chapters. There's a lot of rich material packed in. Uh, for me, Dr. Stead, um, and maybe I'm typical of a lot of people in that I grew up uh, going to Sunday school mm. and knew lots of Bible stories, but it, it it wasn't till all that recently that I could recount for you the the story of the Old Testament and mm. that progression, which becomes so important to us as Bible teachers, especially when we come to the major and minor prophets, to understand, may, maybe we can track the story to coming out of Egypt and settling yeah. in the land under Joshua, and David becomes king. But then after Solomon <laughs> and those northern ten tribes split uh, to the southern tribes, and there are kings in Israel and in Judah, and then there's the two different exiles. Hmm. And then you're talking about, okay, then they come back. So this is what you're talking about when you use that term post-exilic. Exactly right. And that's actually one of the difficulties of, of getting into Haggai in the first uh, instance is that there is a little bit of a hump at the beginning because it's unfamiliar for many for many readers. It's it's dated to a very precise uh, historical circumstance. Very precise. The, the second year of King Darius, we're talking four months of, of, of time, 520 BC from about October to December, it all happens in the space of that, that very short period of time and it, it really hinges on what has just been happening for Israel uh, for the nation of Israel in the last uh, 70 years. Uh, just to pick up the story really quickly, as, you, as you've hinted, um, the, 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 the southern tribe, Judah, uh, was uh, captured and exiled by the Babylonians in 586 BC um, they're, they're languishing in Babylon for a long time uh, the, uh, King Cyrus comes in, he liberates them, 539 BC 
see they're able to come back to the land um, and you would have thought that the very first thing that they would have done when they got back was to rebuild the temple of the Lord and rebuild uh, all of the structures of Jerusalem but uh, they haven't um, by the time we get to the time of, of Haggai which is some 18 years after they've come back um, the temple is still in ruins and really uh, that issue uh, about why the temple is still in ruins what it says about the spiritual condition of the people what they need to do about it they are the, the pressing concerns of, of, of the book of Haggai um, so it seems to me one book we might read when we're trying to get a sense of Haggai's ministry might be the book of Ezra that's right. What Even would though, we discover in Ezra that would help us with Haggai? So Ezra would tell us uh, a lot about the historical circumstances of both uh, the, the the deportation, but also the return and the kind of uh, sense of what was going on in the community uh, at that time. And I guess the, the disappointment that they're feeling—they're coming back, they're expecting that all of the things that have been promised after the exile, things that have been promised by the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, uh, the, the glory days that would return, well, that, that wasn't their experience. They came back to, as we read in Haggai, drought conditions, and they come back to uh, very meagre uh, economic prospects. And the temple is still in ruins and therefore what does that mean about your relationship with God does it mean that the God who used to dwell with his people in the temple who provided the temple as the place for the uh, removal of the problem of sin does that mean that God is absent does that mean that our our sins are still upon us and so they're the kind of issues that are that are very much in, in the forefront and, and as you say you pick them up from reading uh, the book of Ezra uh, will give you a good insight into how the people are feeling at this time you describe in, in the ESV expository Bible commentary where you write about the book of Haggai you mentioned that there are five oracles in this book Yes. So maybe you can tell us what is an oracle and yeah. how do these five oracles help us get a handle on the organization of this book so we can begin to make sense of it? Sure. Um, the oracles are a technical way of talking about a, a, a prophecy and usually they'll have a formulate beginning and or an end or often a, a beginning and an end. Uh, and in Haggai there is a formula that, that talks about the word of the Lord that comes by the hand of usually by the prophet. Um, Haggai or by, by his messenger and that formula uh, it, it occurs, a variation on it occurs about five times and it's a way of saying okay here's a discrete uh, block of, of um, transmission of, of, of a word from the Lord through, through the prophet Haggai Having said that there are five oracles, I think it's easier, though, uh, when you come to preaching it and to teaching it particularly, to group them together so that you take the first pair of oracles as one and the last pair of oracles as one, which means the five become three. Um, the first pair of oracles, which is really chapter one, more or less, is talking about uh, the, the the fact that the house of God lies in ruins and what the people are go why it does and what the people are going to do about it and what happens as a result of that. Uh, the second oracle, which is at the beginning of chapter two, uh, talks about um, the. The, the problem of the glory of the Lord. I might unpack that a little bit more. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the third oracles, which is the, the, the last two that I'm talking about, uh, are, are really uh, to do with uh, what is going to happen 
as a result of the refounding of the temple. The, the, the book of Haggai makes a big deal about the fact that the people have actually got off their backsides and, and, and started the work of rebuilding the temple of the Lord. And the very fact that they have refounded the temple, that has just begun the, refound, the, the reconstruction, that's the turning point for them. That's going to guarantee uh, the, the future for them in terms of blessing for them and for the restoration of the kingdom and the kingship. So there's, there's the mm-hmm. three big ideas. And if you can remember those three big ideas, that really helps to structure how you might go about teaching the, the book of Haggai. The first two oracles, which are about seeking not your own panelled houses, but building the, the mm-hmm. temple of the Lord. The second one about the glory of the Lord. The third one about um, the, the founding of the temple. They're the three themes, if you like, the three themes that, um, that, that, that structure the book as a whole. When we first open up Haggai, I I found it interesting. We've got a prophet, Haggai, and he's speaking to a a kingly figure. We won't necessarily call him the the king, but he is a descendant of David, Zerubbabel. And at the same time, and then Joshua, the priest. That's right. So that's rather interesting to me that at the beginning of this little book, we've got these three offices who are so focused on and featured. priest, and king all coming together, uh, all leading the people. And uh, in, in that first oracle, it starts with prophet, priest, and king. And then we have the people who listen and respond to all three of them together and 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 do the right thing which is exactly the reverse of what went wrong at the, the time of the exile if you go back to the book of jeremiah you have the prophet speaking the word of god but the the priest and the kings and the officials uh, they turn a deaf ear uh, now we see the turnaround where those three officers are working together and it produces the the, the right result Talk to us a little bit about Zerubbabel and his, yeah. and, and, and why he's significant. He's very significant through the book. Uh, he is uh, the the grandson of the king who was on the throne at the time of of the exile, and so he is the Davidic heir to the the, the the kingdom of Israel. Though, as far as we can tell, he never becomes king. But there is this sense in which uh, we're, we're looking to him as the continuity of the promise of of the kingly promise. And indeed, uh, as we get to the New Testament and we look at the human ancestry of Christ, Zerubbabel uh, pops up in in both the the genealogies of Christ as as part of that kingly line of descent and so he's as close as we get to a king in the post-exilic period for for the people of Israel and there's a lot riding on him and in fact the very last uh, prophecy in the book of Haggai um, is an unwinding of a negative prophecy uh, about the kingship back in uh, the book of Jeremiah Jeremiah 22 it talks about the signet ring being plucked off the finger of the king of of that day uh, which was a poetic way of saying the signet ring being the seal of authority was a symbolic way of saying uh, God is stripping kingly authority away from uh, from the king of that day. And now two generations later, uh, and, and just to fill that story out a bit more, at that time, uh, God prophesies again through, through his prophet Jeremiah, um, Jeremiah 22, uh, that uh, none from his seed will sit and rule on the throne of David. And so the question that's left hanging is, does that just mean his immediate offspring, so we've got a whole generation where there is no king, or does it mean something worse than that? There is never going to be an, another king uh, from the line of David. Well, the, 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 
the prophecy in Haggai ends with a restoration uh, that says that he's going to, uh, Zerubbabel, he's going to be like the signet ring in the hand of the Lord. That it's it's, it's a way of God saying yes, he's going to put royal authority back into uh, into this line. That there will be a, a continuing line of David. There there will be a king that will come in fulfilment of those promises made many hundreds of years before to David that we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So Zerubbabel is incredibly significant uh, for that, that idea that God hasn't given up on kingship. His promise to David. His, 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 his promise to David to rule through a king. Yeah. So as teachers, we're going to want to go back to Jeremiah 22, yeah, perhaps right. to understand all mm. of this, as well as forward to, to Matthew. That's right. Yeah. To, to see where he fits in that... Um, Genealogy. Correct. Yeah. So why don't we work our way through these three sections, which it's so helpful. I don't know if it's just the way my, my mind works, but I think for most of us, we've got to be able to see these oracles in some sections. And so we've got three, building God's house, glory, and foundation. Hmm. Now, so let's begin with building God's house. And that section is uh, chapter one. Yeah. And I suppose we need to understand, and and when we're teaching this, help our people understand why it's even a crisis that there is no temple. Yeah. In Jerusalem, why why does this building need to be built? That can come across as just very religious sounding, but what what's at stake if there's no temple? for God's people in Jerusalem. Yeah, it, it's absolutely critical. Uh, if you think about the temple, there are two big themes, and, and Haggai will actually emphasize these themes, is that the temple is the place of God's glory and it's the place of God's sacrifice. So to pick up that first theme, uh, the, 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 the temple is the place for the dwelling of his name or it's the place where God causes his, dwelling, dwell, his glory rather to manifest itself in the midst of his people. Um, it's it's God's way of saying, I am with you because God is manifestly present. That, that, and therefore, the people of God know God is with us because his glory is here. Yeah. Uh, the second uh, reason why the temple is so important, important is because it's the place of sacrifice. It's the place where when you have sinned, uh, there is the God-appointed way of dealing with the problem of sin uh, by offering the sacrifice. God, uh, uh, God, God provides the means for, for, for sin to be atoned. And uh, without the temple, it says two things. It says God is not with us, and it says that you are still in your sin. And therefore, for Israel, it's a big deal to have not had a temple uh, for almost 70 years now. I think that presents an opportunity for us as teachers, yeah. because uh, on this side of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and this side of Pentecost, mm. when we know that the Holy Spirit is actually dwelling in us, and we look back at the once for all sacrifice of Jesus and we know that our sin is atoned for. Mm. But if we try to put ourselves in the shoes of these Old Testament believers, for almost 70 years, there's been no sacrifice for sin. That's right. And there's been no God dwelling amongst his people in the holy of holies. Mm. And perhaps that can help us make that's right. For, help our people feel. That's right. This is not just the, the catastrophe of a building that's been knocked down. This is actually the catastrophe of the absence of God. Yeah. Now, oftentimes, I think when we hear the book of Haggai taught, hmm. there is this sense where the people are being indicted that hmm. the issue is not simply that there's no temple. It's that they have been 
putting the focus on building their own houses. So when I think back to maybe when I've heard the book of Haggai taught, which hasn't been very often, it's been in the midst of like a building campaign, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Right? I'm, I'm For a, the local church? I'm a little bit uncomfortable about that. Are you? I, well, I confess, tell us why. Yeah, I confess that I often hear sermons on Haggai, and they're usually on Haggai chapter 1, and they're usually about uh, picking up the phrase uh, about the people living in their panelled houses where the house of the Lord is, is in ruins, and therefore you need to dig deep and give lots of money to our building programs that we can build the house of the Lord. And the, the problem is that it's missing that um, the biblical theological shift between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So Old Testament, the temple is the place where God dwells with his people. The temple is the place of sacrifice. Uh, we know that in the, um, in the coming of Christ, Christ is both the place of dwelling of God amongst his people and he is the place of sacrifice. He is indeed the sacrifice. And therefore, uh, to, to make that jump and, and uh, and think that Old Testament temple is the same as New Testament church is kind of missing out the Jesus bit uh, in, and and really undervaluing the, the significance of the fact that Jesus is now superseding the, the functions of the temple in the Old Testament. Um, so, uh, yes, I do feel uncomfortable when this passage is used out of context as a justification for fundraising. Mm. Uh, so how do we use this text to apply it? To yeah. today. So I think the, it, we take it along the same trajectory. That is, in the Old Testament, the people were called to prioritise God's uh, work amongst them. And that meant for them uh, committing themselves to building God's house. Uh, for us, it means building God's kingdom. If, if the, the dwelling of God amongst his people, if the place of sacrifice is all revolving around Jesus, we want to introduce as many people as we possibly can to the Lord Jesus. And therefore, for us, uh, uh, the question is not, uh, are we building our panelled houses or building the church, our church building, but are we building our panelled houses or are we seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? That was the problem of the Old Testament was ultimately self-interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they were looking after their own material needs and, and legitimate material needs. They were uh, struggling financially. Uh, but the prophet Haggai is saying, no, you, you should actually be prioritizing uh, God's priorities. And, and for us, that means seeking to, to to build the kingdom of God, uh, which may or may not involve building up our local congregation and building it, bu- building the building, uh, but that can't be the primary or only application of, of Haggai chapter 1. We've talked about a couple of other books that are going to help us with Haggai. We mentioned Ezra. Yeah. I'm thinking maybe Deuteronomy yeah. is important for us understanding Haggai. In what way? It, it's very important because it, it really grounds the whole idea of covenant curses and covenant blessing. Uh, if you go back to the, Deuteron- the, the book of Deuteronomy, particularly chapters 28 through 30, they sketch out two ways to live, as it were. Uh, as the saved people of God, if you want to live God's way, then God uh, will bless you. Uh, but if you go your own way, then God will withhold the blessings of the covenant. Haggai is echoing a lot of that language out of Deuteronomy. Where do we find that in chapter 1? Yeah. So when he talks in verses 10 and 11 about the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops and the drought on the fields and, and, and so on, uh, the drought on the, the new wine, the olive and, uh, and the, the product of the ground, those phrases come straight out of the book of, of Deuteronomy as a reminder to Haggai's generation and indeed to us uh, 
uh, about these blessings and curses of, of the covenant. And and Haggai is saying that the, the, you, you're so worried about your your own material comfort and you're worried about prioritizing your, your own needs, but don't you realize that you're actually creating the problem for yourself by forsaking the Lord and going after uh, your your own panelled houses? You are in fact causing uh, the, the the very um, curse situation that you find yourself in, and. Uh, what's really interesting, though, is that encouraging the people to change their behaviour, he doesn't uh, dangle out the carrot of of the prosperity gospel. That is, he doesn't say, well, you're experiencing curses now, but if you turn around, then the reason you should do this is because then then God will have to bless you. Rather, he says, the reason you should do uh, uh, you should build the house of the Lord is not for your own sake, but for God's sake. Uh, why why should you build the house of, of the Lord? Well, uh, the the, the critical verse is in verse 8. Um, he says, go and build, God says, go and build my house. Why? So that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be honoured. Now, God taking pleasure in it is not just God looking down and saying, oh, isn't that a lovely house? It's a technical phrase that's often used of sacrifice. So when it talks about the God taking pleasure in his house, it's actually talking about God being pleased by the sacrifices which are offered the there. The pleasing aroma we've read about in that, many other places. That, that's right. It's that language that's being picked up here. So the two reasons why you should build the house is so that the Lord may delight in the sacrifices which are offered there and that the Lord may be gloried in it, mm-hmm. glorified in it. So those two uh, problems that I mentioned earlier, the fact of um, the absence of sacrifice and the, the apparent absence of the Lord, the, the reason why you want to build the temple is to turn that around uh, so that God will take pleasure again in your sacrifices so that God will be glorified in his house. Mm. That's why the people should act, to honour the Lord. And then Haggai's point is that when they honour the Lord, the blessings will flow. But it's not a question of the reason why you should build the house is ultimately about self-interest. It's actually about uh, seeking Not a to quid pro quo kind of thing it, it, with exact, God. Exactly right. It's just his, his mercy and grace toward us. Yeah. Let's look at this second section, uh, which begins at the beginning of chapter 2. Yeah, it goes from chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. Okay. And it's all about the glory of the Lord and, and particularly the glory of the temple or the apparent absence of the glory of the temple. Um, helpful background reading for this for people who are hoping to teach this might be to go and have a look at the parallel passages in Ezra, uh, which describes what happened on the day of the founding of the what we call the second temple. Um, and, and there were tears of joy as well as uh, tears of sadness. There were tears of joy because finally we're doing something, but those who remember the, the former temple, the Temple of Solomon in all its glory, they're looking at the current temple and it looks frankly pathetic by comparison it's on a much smaller scale um, it doesn't have the opulence of all the dressed stone and the gold and the silver and all of that it was a, a, a pittance by comparison and chapter two the, the oracle in chapter two is really uh, uh, picking up that idea and reminding the people of God to look beyond what they can see with their their physical eyes and, and to realize that um, the, the the glory of the Lord is there for those who have who have, have who have eyes to see it. Um, you, you get that um, that that sense of disappointment um, in verse three, for example, when it says, "Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing?" Um, but don't be discouraged by by that apparent absence of glory, because the promise is. Um, I am with you, said the Lord. Mm. Uh, be strong. It's an encouragement, again, to Zerubbabel and to Joshua and to the other people to recognize 
beyond what they can see and what looks like a very meagre human endeavor. It's interesting to me that that's uh, the Lord's repeated consolation or encouragement. It might not be what we expect Mm. that he speaks into that. I am with you. Although that sounds very familiar from Joshua's day and Solomon's day in the original building of the temple. Mm. Uh, he, he keeps wanting us to know that's that that's that's the word of encouragement and comfort. I'm with you. Yeah, and because God is with His people, His glory is actually there. So the glory of the temple isn't necessarily from its outward manifestation of a huge building with precious stones and gold and silver. The thing that makes it glorious is the fact that God is with His people again, mm-hmm. and that's the thing that you can't necessarily see. And so looking beyond. Uh, if you like, the outward impressive manifestations of glory uh, is, is what the, the oracle here is encouraging the people of God to do. And I think it's the same for us as Christians, uh, is that often we want um, our ministry to be glorious. We want the things that we do for the Lord to to, to be uh, um, earth-shattering and, and to public acclaim. Um, but often that's not God's way. Uh, God's way is often tre- treasures in jars of clay, and, and it's often um, it's the, it's the way of the cross rather than the way of glory. Uh, well, actually, the way of the cross is the way of glory for those <laughs> who have eyes to see it. That's mm. that's really but what, suffering before glory. That's right, and and that's what uh, Haggai too is trying to remind the people uh, that your idea of glory is not necessarily the same as God's idea of glory. Mm. Uh, for many of us, when we're teaching this, we're going to have a lot of people in our class or group that have perhaps been very influenced by dispensational theology mm. looking for a very physical mm. uh, fulfillment of these promises of a temple. So do you have any advice for us as as teachers in terms of where that's going to come up as we teach Haggai and how we might respond to some of the questions from people whose minds regarding a temple and a temple being rebuilt uh, are thinking about uh, limestone yeah. in the modern city of Jerusalem. Yeah. Well, I think the best way to handle that is to think about how the New Testament picks up Haggai. So picking up this chapter in particular, uh, when it talks about what God is going to do to bring in the glory of this house and he's going to shake the nations. It's like rattling the nations to collect the change out of their pockets is the kind of metaphor there. Uh, the, the New Testament book of Hebrews picks up that uh, idea that once more God will shake the things. Um, but it's clear that what is being anticipated in Hebrews is not the rebuilding of a physical temple in Jerusalem, but the the the, the heavenly temple, the New Jerusalem, that one day uh, the what's to be established is that that heavenly kingdom. And therefore, the new the way that the New Testament uses these prophecies in in Haggai is not in anticipation of a, a literal third temple in Jerusalem, but a a new temple in the the new heavenly Jerusalem, which then becomes part of the new heavens, the new earth. So that's probably the best way to use that is to use it the way that the New Testament uses it. And if you were teaching this section of Haggai and talking about uh, the fulfillment of the glory Mm. coming to the temple, uh, where would you go? Yeah, so I think I, I I would start with uh, the the hidden glory of Jesus, uh, and so uh, Jesus is the manifestation um, of His glory, uh, as as it says in the prologue. Uh, we have seen His glory, the glory of the the one and only. Uh, but that, for the most part, that glory of God manifesting Christ was 
veiled. Uh, you might have seen a little glimpse of it on the Mount of Transfiguration if you happen to be there, but for the most part, um, you look at Jesus, you just see a, a wandering teacher in the first century, and you look at his death on the cross, and it looks anything but glorious. We know that uh, Jesus is glorious. We won't see the manifestation of that glory until the final day. Right now, Jesus has been clothed in all glory and honour and power, but for us who remain here, that still is still a, a hidden glory. And, and chapter two is all about that that sense of the hidden glory and the glory that's mm-hmm. to come. We are still very much in that phase of the the the, um, the hidden glory. We're anticipating the day when when God will once more shake the heavens and the earth. That that uh, the, the manifest glory will come, mm-hmm. but that won't come until the second coming of Christ. So we've got the very a real time and in history, the person of Jesus coming to the temple. Yeah. Uh, Luke wants us to know that uh, this 12-year-old is lingering in the temple. So the glory comes physically to the temple at that point. Yeah. But then we also have today uh, we who are living stones, mm. right, who are being built into a temple, yeah. uh, that we are being transformed from, from glory. One, from one degree of glory to the to, next. To yeah. the next. Yes. Uh, but but is, is that glory a kind of shining halo? No, it's mm. actually a, a, a hidden glory. It's, it's an inner glory mm. uh, that, that waits to be revealed for the final day. The book of Haggai began by these oracles uh, encouraging, challenging the people to get back to work, building the temple. And as we move through the book, they respond to that yeah. in obedience. And they begin to, to build. And we mentioned earlier kind of the timestamps that are given on each of these oracles, and they tell us exactly what has happened. So we get the sense they've started the work, but then in this third oracle comes this very significant event. They evidently have been doing some preparatory work, and the day comes when they lay a foundation stone. That's right. And that's this third section, foundation. Yeah, and that's right. And and the book of Haggai really points to this as the turning point for for them and for their future uh, future fortunes. Um, the, the two oracles that make up the third section of the book really work together. They're both dated to exactly the same day, the 24th day of the ninth month, uh, which is the day that the temple was refounded. And... Uh, the, what the the first part of the oracle is in a sense looking back and it's saying so um, what, what's what's your situation up until now it hasn't been great has it and in fact you're in drought conditions all the the, the, the meager crops around you that that has been your experience to this point but you you mark this day is, is effectively what Haggai is saying because this is going to be the turning point there's some strange imagery yeah. that's a little bit foreign to us in in these two oracles we read in chapter two, Uh, Verse 12, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and Mm -hmm. touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil of any kind of food, does it become holy? What is this about? Yeah. So, again, to understand this, you probably need to look at the... um, some passages in the book of Leviticus which explain the whole system of clean and unclean. And to, to cut a long story short, the purpose of this oracle is to, to remind the people that um, uh, unholiness is contaminating uh, or it, it spreads in a way that holiness doesn't. So the, the two examples are, like, if you've got a, a holy thing, is it able to uh, transmit holiness through contact? Uh, and the answer is no, it can't. Uh, whereas 
uncleanliness, uh, things that are unclean, uh, they they can contaminate by contact, and you kind of have third and fourth degree uh, con- contamination. What does that mean? Well, it means that if you're you're in a situation where you have no way of making something clean again, everything is going to end up unclean eventually. If if un uh, things which become unclean just by contact, uh, you, the progressive contact means the thing, the, your, your whole your whole environment is going to be unclean. In the days of Leviticus, that was okay because you had the temple and you'd be able to uh, offer sacrifices and unclean things would become clean again. There was a way of, of, of crossing back over, but without a temple, uh, there was no way of doing this. And so these very to us very strange questions about clean and unclean are a way of reinforcing to that generation their predicament that they are unclean and they've got no way of making themselves clean what's all about to change well it's all going to change because of the founding of the temple the refounding of the temple because that's going to provide the mechanism for um, a washing away of sins of, of turning unclean things into into clean things again the punchline for that first oracle is what comes in verses 18 and 19 so the the all the the examples of of clean and unclean and the fact that uh, th- because they've been unclean they've experienced all of this uh, th- these terrible situations uh, but the turnaround is in verse 18 from this day on from the 24th day of the ninth month give careful thought uh, to the day that, that when the temple of the Lord's the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Uh, what's going to happen is uh, right now there's nothing in the barns, but says the Lord, on the, from this day I will bless you. Uh, the very fact of refounding the, the the temple of the Lord is going to turn their fortunes around. And the really interesting thing is that it's not going to be, well, wait till you rebuild the temple and then we'll reinstitute the sacrifice. Like it took them five or six years from this point to finish building the temple. It's not in five years I will bless you uh, once we've re-established the temple. No, right from this point, from the foundation day, that's the turning of fortunes. And it's the same day uh, which is the, the, the turning of fortunes in the next oracle, uh, which is about the king and the kingship. I love what you wrote about this in your contribution to the ESV uh, Expository Bible Commentary. He said, Their prosperity is not because a, a completed temple has led to an outpouring of God's divine favor or because a completed temple has made their offerings acceptable to God. They are, from that day forward, beginning to experience God's divine favor or blessing as a result of his unmerited mercy. Yeah, I think about our, our, our teaching and so much of a book like Haggai, we're going back and forth in the Old Testament, we're talking about things that are foreign. And yet we, what you have said there kind of uh, draws the whole Bible together or an understanding that, that the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the yeah. New Testament. And he's always been a God of a abounding unmerited mercy. Yeah, that's right. And for that generation and for us, they can point to a particular day and say that that was the day, that was foundation day that turned it all, when God turned it all around. In the same way as Christians, we can do the same we, we can look at the, the day of the death and resurrection, days of the death and resurrection of Jesus and say, that's the day. That, that's that's the, the moment we, where we can say, uh, God is with us to bless us. Uh, God has taken upon himself all the curse of our sin and therefore there is nothing left but for blessing to come to his people. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it all turns around not, not because we deserved it or we've done the necessary things to earn God's favour, but rather that God has graciously decreed from this day on, I will bless you. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I hear that word foundation stone, mm-hmm. I, 
if, if I were preparing to teach Haggai, I'd, I'd have to, I think, try to figure out, we think about uh, Jesus describing himself as a stone yeah, that was right. rejected or as the cornerstone. Is is that a fair, is that an inbound yeah. uh, that, kind that, of place to go? Or, no. or how would you connect those things a- if you were teaching this? A- absolutely. That would be, I would connect it to the cornerstone teaching of Jesus that in the, in the way that God has laid in Christ a cornerstone for a whole uh, new humanity rising up from, from, from him. Um, he is founded on that foundation stone. It's the same kind of language uh, that's used here, uh, that's used in the book of Zechariah, and then again is picked up by Jesus. Uh, so yes, I, I definitely would connect it with the cornerstone cornerstone imagery uh, that's elsewhere in the Bible. If you were teaching that through this book of Haggai, and my uh, thinking is probably you have a time or two, yeah. <laughs> um, what is your hope in terms of the impact that this book would have on the hearts and lives of those you're teaching it to? Um, I would really hope that this will point them to Jesus. Um, it'd be a shame if all they came away with was a greater knowledge of the post-exilic period of the Old Testament and to understand the particular concerns of, of that group of people in the 6th century BC. Uh, rather, I think it's really important that people get a sense that Haggai is looking forward to what God is going to do in the midst of his people. And just as he did it for that generation, and it was centred on a physical temple in Jerusalem, he's done exactly the same thing for us centred on the new temple raised up in in Christ and the things which were promised in terms of a place for the offering of sin, a place for the dwelling of God, the means of blessing for God's people, glory of God dwelling with his people, all of those things, they all come together for us in Christ. And so I really would hope that um, if nothing else, people would see Haggai ultimately as pointing to Christ and of God's good purposes in raising up Christ to bless his people. Would you close this way, uh, Dr. Stead, would you speak directly to someone who may be preparing to teach the book of Haggai and give them perhaps a word of instruction or encouragement as they do the work of figuring it out for themselves and then how they're going to give it out to God's people? Yeah, my... Uh, words of encouragement would be, first of all, uh, be prepared to do a little bit of hard work on this. It's, it's harder to preach from the Old Testament, uh, but it's worth it. If you uh, put, put in the effort, you will richly bless yourself and your hearers. And, and so, yes, take the time to trace through the connections between Haggai and Deuteronomy and Leviticus and, and Jeremiah and all these other passages that we've mentioned, uh, because it will become richer for you as, as you do that. The second word of encouragement is to, to preach it with passion, uh, to Teach it uh, as, as not just a, a dead history lesson, uh, but as the living word of God uh, that, that speaks to our generation just as it spoke to, to that generation. Uh, to, to expect that it will have the same effect for our generation as it did for them. Haggai preached to his generation and they heard and obeyed. There's basically a trust and obey response that we Sometimes see. Sometimes we're pessimistic about that, yeah, aren't yeah. we? And, and actually realize just as he called his generation to stop um, put investing yourself in your panelled houses and invest yourself in God's kingdom to expect that God, by his spirit, will bring about the same change in the people that we're teaching his word to. Um, and that's why God has given us his word to actually uh, to shape his people. And so teach that word with passion. Uh, bring it to people's hearts and minds and expect that God will work in them by his word. Thank you so much, Dr. Stead, for helping us teach the Bible. Ah, my pleasure. Thank you. 
You've been listening to Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie, a production of the Gospel Coalition, sponsored by Crossway. Crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian Books and Tracts, including the ESV Bible Expository Commentary Series. This Volume 7 that covers Daniel to Malachi is now available. Learn more about Crossway's gospel-centered resources at crossway.org.